This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week... We have a lot of really interesting dinosaur news, including a 97% complete dinosaur skeleton from Zimbabwe, which was just announced. We also have new huge dinosaur eggs found in Idaho, and we have an update on the whole soft tissue in fossilized dinosaurs debate. Ooh. Yeah. We also have dinosaur of the day, Hylaeosaurus, and of course, our fun fact. But before we get into that, we'd like to thank some of our patrons by name, and this week we'd like to thank Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, Ray, Oliver E., Andrew and Helena Webb, Callum, Ricky, William, Red Sox Rex, Jay, Wouter, Chirac, Moss Utah Raptor, and Lanasaur. And Lanasaur just joined, so thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much. We appreciate all of your support. And we've mentioned before, this really helps us keep the podcast going. And we love seeing the community grow. Yeah, it's really great. Yeah. So if you want to join this growing group of amazing people, then check out our page at patreon.com slash I know Dino. Jumping into the news, our first topic is the update on dinosaur soft tissues. And this was an article published in eLife by Evan T. Seta and others. And basically what they did was they were trying to do a more controlled experiment on whether or not there are soft tissues in dinosaur bones. And it's potentially kind of a fly in the ointment for fans of soft tissue dinosaur studies. But I'll get into that. So Essentially, what they did is they tried to use aseptic protocols in order to extract a bone. And what aseptic means is that you're trying not to kill anything that's alive on the fossil, and you're also trying not to introduce any new living things. So you're trying to just kind of be like neutral towards life as you do it, which is quite a bit different than how we usually dig out bones. Usually, you just assume everything's dead, so you just get out the same old hammer and pick as you always do, and you chisel it out, and you get it back to the lab. You're using, you know, just your bare skin. You probably aren't even wearing gloves. But in this case, it's like gloves. We're going to sterilize all the tools and do like everything, <laughs> almost like you're in a operating room or something to make sure everything stays not sterile because you don't want to kill the things that are already there, but you don't want to introduce anything new either. So what they did was they went to an area where they knew there were a lot of dinosaur bones that they could hopefully find quickly. And 
they just excavated essentially the first thing that they found <laughs> or a thing that looked like it would be a good candidate. And it turned out to be a Centrosaurus bone, but that really didn't matter. They weren't really interested in what type of bone it was so much as the fact that they could get it out easily and quickly and not mess it up with their DNA <laughs> with a really complicated excavation. So once they got it back to the lab, they chemically and biologically examined the fossil and what they found is that there was a lot of bacteria living on the fossil. And we've discussed before that there's sort of a debate about whether or not bacteria could live on fossils and if that could be an alternative interpretation of some of the soft tissue findings. So if you find, say, amino acids and you assume that it's coming from the dinosaur fossil itself, the other main hypothesis that's been proposed is if there was some microbe living on the fossil and you just do a chemical analysis and you find amino acids, you might just be finding amino acids from that microbe. So it's been an important question to see whether or not bacteria really live on fossils in any large quantities. So these colonies of bacteria and other microorganisms can form what are called biofilms. And basically that's like a whole coating of this chemical across the bone. <laughs> so you could see it sort of evenly distributed or you might see it just in little spots. And depending on what your analysis is like, you could interpret a biofilm produced by microorganisms as tissue, which was actually just part of the dinosaur. So it depends on how you're looking at it and if you can find the right evidence to support whether it's from a dinosaur or from a microorganism. So when these researchers compared the surrounding rock to the centrosaurus bones, they found that the centrosaurus bones had more DNA, amino acids, and organic carbon. So it looks like there was a kind of different habitat going around on the bones. And apparently, according to the authors, quote, subsurface dinosaur bone is a relatively fertile habitat, attracting microbes that likely utilize inorganic nutrients and complicate identification of original organic material, end quote. So specifically, they're saying that stuff like phosphorus and the porosity and moisture of a fossilized bone makes it really attractive for microbes to live on it. So you can imagine sort of like a rotting log, <laughs> how all sorts of stuff starts growing on it. The same kind of thing, I guess, can happen with a bone that's essentially rotting but underground and very slowly. The lead author, Seda, also told Fizz.org that the microbes that they did find were unusual and he said, quote, 30% of the sequences are related to Eusebia, which is only reported from places like Etruscan tombs and the skin of sea cucumbers, as far as I know, end quote. That is unusual. <laughs> yeah, it's incredibly unusual. But maybe since it's from a tomb, I wonder if there's a lot of bone in there and that's what's happening. I don't know. It's very strange. But the point is, basically that the surrounding dirt didn't have that kind of microbe in it. So it's not like, oh yeah, there were these microbes in the soil and then they found this area with a lot of porosity and moisture. So of course they grew there. It's, it really looks more like they're kind of colonizing the bone itself, like they sought out <laughs> or otherwise just mutated on the spot into something which could take advantage of that specific dinosaur bone habitat. But Reading this did make me wonder if it might be a false dichotomy because it seems possible that there could be some bones that have microbes and there could be other bones that have real soft tissues because really what they did was they tested one centrosaurus bone or set of bones 
to see if they had more DNA, amino acids, and organic carbon than the surrounding rock, and if it looked at all like what previous studies had found. So yes, they did find something similar, but this is just one test. What you really want to do is test the same fossil in multiple ways. And I, I could see it being possible that you could even have both on the same fossil. I don't know. I think there's still a lot of room to be done in this debate. It's definitely not like, oh, we proved that a colony can live on a bone and therefore it's definitive that you'll never find proteins in dinosaur bone. I think it's a little more complicated than that. But it'll be really interesting to see how the proponents of finding collagen and like blood cell tissue and things like that respond to the study. We might be entering an era where like excavating fossils has to be done really carefully in almost a sterile environment to prevent any kind of contamination. Be really interesting. That is, has been the trend if you think about the way fossils used to be collected. True, yeah. Like we used to use dynamite and then they're like, well, let's try not to break the bones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we went through the phase too where we're like, well, let's excavate it really carefully rather than just in the fields. That's kind of the next step so you don't get rid of the feather traces and things like that. Next phase is gloves and sterile equipment. We also have an article from JVP. This one was by Jade Simon and others. And they're describing a pair of eggs that were actually originally reported in 2017 in southeastern Idaho, specifically in Bonneville County near Idaho Falls. And these eggs were from the Macroelongatulithus genus, or U genus, because as we've described before, individual dinosaur tracks and eggs and other traces can also get these ichnotaxa. It's not just the dinosaurs themselves that get names. But Macroelongatulithus is usually found in Asia, and they're incredibly massive. I always think of them as kind of rugby ball-sized eggs. That's why they have the name macro, right? <laughs> yeah, because they're huge. <laughs> but they're not really rugby-sized. They're, they're quite a bit narrower. They're, I, don't, I don't even know how to describe them. They're very, very long and narrow. Specifically for this one, because this paper is the official description of the dinosaur eggs, they are 39.8 to 41.7 centimeters long and 10.8 to 14.3 centimeters wide, which in our weird imperial units is about one foot four inches long by five inches wide, so five inches in diameter, which is an enormous egg, like over a foot long by almost half a foot in diameter. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. It's also a weird shape compared to what we're used to for eggs because it's it's more symmetric. It doesn't like have this big bulgy end and a pointy end. It's more like a pipe, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Think of the dinosaur that laid it. And how difficult it would be to lay it. Well, it's a giant egg, so I assume it's a big dinosaur, probably. Yeah, yeah they were pretty big, but they were far from the biggest dinosaurs, which I think is pretty interesting that the biggest dinosaurs like titanosaurs basically laid small balls, you know, like not even bowling ball sized balls. But this thing is wearing these laying these enormous pipe things. Sure. But I'm sure that's why they're so <laughs> narrow, because obviously you lay it on that narrow axis. And since the dinosaur is not as big, it doesn't have as big of a cloaca to push that egg out of. So, yeah, it's pretty weird. The current best guess is that they came from a quote-unquote colossal oviraptorosaur, 
which is actually in the title of the paper. This would be something like a gigantoraptor, basically. I think it's interesting that they actually stuck that in the title of the paper because the reason that we have ichnotaxa for something like an egg is because it's so hard to determine just what specific individual an egg came from. Basically, the only way to determine it for sure is to find the animal inside the egg, like an embryo inside it. You could maybe say that if you find an adult over it, that it was probably guarding the nest. That's, uh, that's how you get the mistake of oviraptors. Yeah. Well, at the time, we thought that oviraptor was eating the eggs. And then later we decided, oh, no, it was probably protecting them. So it's, yeah, that's kind of where we're still at. still don't oviraptors. know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really hard unless you find the embryo. But in any event, since the authors are convinced that this is from an oviraptorosaur, I'm going to go with that. And if it is the case, that means that it's significantly expanded the range of these huge oviraptorosaurs because we've never found them in the early Cretaceous in Idaho before. Usually we find these eggs in Asia. And I, as far as I know, we don't have any evidence of another huge oviraptorosaur in the area. So that greatly expands their range. But I think it is technically possible that there's another type of dinosaur that laid these eggs there that we might already know about because we don't know what a lot of dinosaur eggs looked like. And it's possible that by convergent evolution, some other dinosaurs were laying eggs that look kind of like oviraptorosaur eggs. We didn't really find them in the same clutch either. We've seen elongate eggs in a clutch, kind of in a circle, and then we assume that the oviraptor kind of plopped down in the middle of it. But I think this is just a pair of eggs. So I think that's even less evidence that it's exactly the same as some of the other ones. But the simplest explanation is that it is another giant oviraptorosaur egg, which is why they stuck that in their title. See, I knew it had to be a giant one. Yeah. You can't have a tiny dinosaur laying <laughs> an enormous egg. Well, it's colossal for an oviraptorosaur, yeah. but for a dinosaur, oviraptorosaurs really aren't that big. Sure, sure. But it's not going to be something like a microraptor. That's true. Yeah, it can't lay an egg that's bigger than it. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It would be cool to see a gigantoraptor showing up in sort of like the Hell Creek or something like that. Oh, yeah. In Zimbabwe, there was a team of researchers that recently found a 97% complete dinosaur skeleton. This isn't yet peer reviewed, so there's not too many details, but it could be the most complete dinosaur skeleton found so far. The record right now that's been peer reviewed is Sue, the T Rex, at 90% complete. Huh. That's surprising to me because I thought we had some that were essentially 100% complete from Asia in like those slabs, like the little bird dinosaurs. Oh, true, true. Maybe they're cutting it off at like a certain scale. Yeah, <laughs> for these large types of dinosaurs. Yeah. This one was probably from the late Triassic. It was lightly built, could possibly grow up to 9.8 feet or 3 meters. So I guess not that large. It's still pretty good size. Bigger than those single slab type of dinosaurs. Right. Uh, parts of the skeleton were on display last month at national museums in Bulawayu and Harare. So if anyone was able to see them, let us know. Yeah, that'd be cool. It'd be kind of fun if when they display it, they emphasize the bones that are replicas and it would just be like a couple tiny bones. <laughs> and the rest of it is 100% original. That's true because it'd only be 3%. Yeah. Since you mentioned Sue the T-Rex, speaking of T-Rex, Alan Titus, who's a BLM paleontologist, found potential evidence of T-Rex living in groups. So he found an ankle bone of an adult T-Rex on the 
Kaiparowitz Plateau in Utah. He and his team also found fossils from four other tyrannosaurs. It was an adult and three juveniles, which might show that they took care of their young together and they were social and they hunted together. But there's been a lot of debate over this, over in general carnivore, carnivorous dinosaurs and how gregarious they were. Alan said, quote, I'm thinking these tyrannosaur social groups were lifelong groups that they included parental care and mentoring of the young. I'm suspecting it's common to all the tyrannosaurs, end quote. So I'm looking forward to eventually reading the paper about this and hearing more about why they think this particular group was more than just happened to die together. Yeah, it kind of sounds like that's what it is, though. <laughs> that's a typical assumption that we always talk about how fraud it is to say like, well, we found a few individuals together and therefore they live together. It's like, mm, well. <laughs> Maybe. There might be other evidence that we don't know about yet because it hasn't been written down or uh, written in a paper. I hope so. In Hokkaido, Japan, researchers have made progress on a dinosaur fossil that was found in 2003. So it's known as the Mukawa dinosaur. It's about 26 feet or eight meters long, and it is probably a new type of hadrosaur. And this is based on it having thin forelimbs and some unique features on the skull bones. Hmm. So the Mukoa dinosaur was probably about nine years old when it died and weighed between four and 5.3 tons. And it lived during the Cretaceous. More than 80% of the fossils have been found. So that would make it the largest complete dinosaur found so far in Japan. Because we just talked about the 97% complete one in Zimbabwe. So mm -hmm. <laughs> you could see a replica and the real fossils on display at the 2019 Dinosaur Expo on July 13th at the National Museum of Nature and Science in Tokyo. For anyone who might be in Tokyo in July. Sounds pretty cool. Anything with dinosaur and expo in the name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we got a quick update to the latest ceratopsian that was found in Colorado. So paleontologists have been working on the fossils at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And they're saying it was an adult triceratops. Not a taurosaurus? No, they're saying adult triceratops. So <laughs> the debate continues. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be a long time, though, till that one's ready for scientific review. Yeah. I guess it's possible that when they say it's an adult triceratops, it's on that borderline and it's like the group that does think Taurosaurus exists, but this one's just a large triceratops. Mm. <laughs> I have to wait and see what its frill looks like. True. Yeah, I don't know how much they have yet. If you're looking for some fun activities to do this summer and you happen to live in the New England area, the Boston Globe wrote a piece about, they called it walking in the footsteps of New England dinosaurs and you know, basically it's places to go to see dinosaurs and more specifically, dinosaur tracks. So sites include the Turner Falls at the Great Discovery Center in Massachusetts, where you see dinosaur footprints. There's a rock fossil and dinosaur shop, and the Beneski Museum of Natural History at Amherst College, which has 1,200 slabs with more than 21,000 tracks and traces of dinosaurs and other animals. That is a lot. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing a lot of that is other animals, because <laughs> that would be an insane amount of dinosaur tracks. I guess we'll have to go and see for ourselves. Although we would lose count. <laughs> yeah. If you include bird fossils mm. or bird track fossils, you can fit a lot of those in a pretty small slab. It all depends on the dinosaur. Did they retrace their steps? Who knows? Last, there's a new dinosaur mural in Drumheller, Alberta, in Canada. It replaced a worn out mural on the side of Agard's upholstery, and that was made in the 1990s. The new one has a T-Rex as well as a pterodactyl, and it was a collaboration with Image Crafter Signs. There's a committee that's working on other dinosaur projects around Drumheller, and they hope to install some new dinosaurs this summer in downtown. Nice. Mm -hmm. 
This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Hylaeosaurus, which was a request from Morgan, who is one of our patrons and is also on our Discord server. So just a quick reminder for people out there, if you are a patron, then you can request dinosaurs. <laughs> so Hylaeosaurus was an ankylosaur that lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now England. It was part of the three original dinosaurs that Richard Owen based Dinosauria on in 1842 when he coined the term. We've covered the other two. There was Iguanodon, which we talked about in episode 87, and Megalosaurus, which we talked about in episode 47. So not surprisingly, Hylaeosaurus was one of the first dinosaurs discovered. Gideon Mantell discovered it back in 1832. Only a few fossils have been found, so not too much is known. But the holotype includes the rear of the skull, vertebrae, and some spikes and armored plates. Other fossils that may have been referred to Hylaeosaurus come from the Isle of Wight, France, Spain, Germany, and Romania, but many of these are considered dubious or could belong to Polycanthus, a different genus. Hylaeosaurus may have been a basal nodosaurid or a basal ankylosaurid. It's often depicted as a typical nodosaur with rows of plates on the back and tail and a long head with a beak to crop vegetation. It had shoulder spines that curved back and they're long, flattened, narrow, and pointed. It had at least three long spines on its shoulder, and it had body armor. Hylaeosaurus is estimated to be up to 20 feet or 6 meters long. Gregory Paul estimated it to be about 16 feet or 5 meters long and weighed 2 tons. Darren Nash estimated it to be between 9.8 to 13.1 feet or 3 to 4 meters long. 
Gideon Mantell thought that it was 25 feet or 7.6 meters long, so much bigger, about half the size of Iguanodon and Megalosaurus at the time. And he thought that it was like a modern lizard, which was very common for these first few dinosaurs. Oh, yeah. That's why they're called dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> the type species is Hylaeosaurus armatus, and the genus name means belonging to the forest lizard or of the wood lizard. It's named after the Tilgate Forest where it was found. Later, Mantell said that it meant wilden lizard, which is another word for forest, to refer to the wilden group, the formation where it was found. The species name means armed or armored and refers to the fact that it has spikes and plates. The first fossils were found in West Sussex. Gideon Mantell wrote to Professor Benjamin Silliman in July 1832 after there was a gunpowder explosion that led to exposing some fossils in boulders. So speaking of how the way we dig up for fossils has changed over the years. Yeah. Incidental explosions don't yep. happen too often anymore. <laughs> to now we can study the tissue. <laughs> yeah. So a local fossil dealer put together about 50 pieces and sold them to Gideon Mantell. And that was more bones than had been found of Megalosaurus and Iguanodon at the time. So this made Hylaeosaurus the most complete dinosaur skeleton found at the time, which still wasn't very, but at the time, I'm sure really <laughs> exciting. The original specimen is now part of the Natural History Museum of London. At first, Mantell thought that Hylaeosaurus was Iguanodon, but then William Clift, curator of the Royal College of Surgeons of England Museum, noticed that it had body armor, the plates and spikes. So Mantell decided to name the specimen Hylaeosaurus. Then Mantell sent Hylaeosaurus to the Geological Society of London and met with Richard Owen, who told him that the paper he'd written about Hylaeosaurus was too long. And Mantell's friend Charles Lyle told him to write a book about the fossils he'd found and then include a chapter on Hylaeosaurus. And Mantell was able to write that in three weeks. The book that Mantell wrote was called The Geology of the Southeast of England and was published in 1833. There were four species of Hylaeosaurus, but only the type species is still considered to be valid. Other species included Hylaeosaurus owenii, Mantell named it to honor Richard Owen, but now that's considered to be a junior synonym of Hylaeosaurus armatus. Womp womp for Richard Owen. <laughs> <laughs> there was Hylaeosaurus northamptoni, which was originally named Regnosaurus, but renamed in 1956 by Alfred Romer. And then there's Hylaeosaurus foxi, which was originally Polycanthus, but renamed in 1971 by Walter Coombs. Though neither Hylaeosaurus northamptoni or Hylaeosaurus foxi have been accepted, and that's why there's only one species that's considered valid. Mm. You can see Hylaeosaurus at Crystal Palace Dinosaur, and we made a video of Crystal Palace Dinosaur when we visited. We'll add a link in our show notes in case you haven't seen it yet. Yeah, that one's really cool because there's actually a Hylaeosaurus, the original head kind of fell off or was removed. It's too heavy or something. Yeah, from the original sculpture, and it's just sitting on a hill behind where everything else is. And I totally missed it when we walked through the first time. You have to go to this back area. But I think it's one of the coolest parts of the park because you can actually touch it mm -hmm. and like get up close and personal with it. Whereas the rest of it's kind of far away on these islands behind a fence. Right. So yeah, definitely worth checking out. And you can't see the head of the sculpture by the way it's laid out now either. Mm -hmm. So it's a win-win if you're walking around. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So Mark Witten wrote a detailed post about the science behind the Crystal Palace dinosaurs, and he said that Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins didn't always follow Richard Owen's ideas on what the dinosaurs should look like, and in some cases made them look more like Gideon Mantell's descriptions. Mm -hmm. So Hawkins also put spines in a single row along the midline with lots of small scutes on either side. 
so he went with Mantell's vision instead of Owen's, who wanted the single row. Owen, in 1841, thought that the spines were actually ribs, gastralia, because they were asymmetrical. But by 1854, he thought they were spines, and then later he thought that there were two rows of spines. In 1841, Mantell wrote memoir on a portion of the lower jaw of the iguanodon, and on the remains of the Hylaeosaurus and other saurians discovered in the strata of Tilgate Forest in Sussex. It's quite the title. Mm-hmm. And in it, he describes in great detail his find of Hylaeosaurus and how many of the fossils were destroyed by workmen on accident, but that there was still strong evidence of it being a new genus. And he also describes the referred specimens, which are now not considered to be Hylaeosaurus, and he includes some sketches. So it's pretty interesting because it's in the public domain, so anybody can read this. Although some of the words are spelled differently because English evolved in the last couple hundred years. Oh, yeah. And using the terminology of the time, some of the scientific terminology is kind of weird because it's like pre-germ theory and stuff. So they had different ways of describing things. But it makes you wonder if they had gotten a more complete specimen of this Hylaeosaurus, like if it hadn't been as destroyed would we have a different early interpretation of dinosaurs? Like, would they have realized that it wasn't quite like a lizard? Yeah, it's hard to say. Maybe it would have even been called something other than dinosauria. Yeah, no way for us to know at this point. True. Just (laughs) random speculation. Yeah. So Mantell wrote this memoir probably around the end of his life. He wrote that he presented everything to Richard Owen, and though that he's worked with artist M. Dinkle, they were not able to complete recreating Hylaeosaurus, but he said he did not regret not finishing the project because, quote, the subject will be elucidated by one far more competent to do it justice, end quote. It's quite humble. It is. He also wrote very eloquently how it's the end of his years of research and he's ready for it to move on to somebody else. And he ended his memoir with, quote, I end here my work and I leave it to my successors to cultivate a field which I have only opened and which certainly will give them richer harvest than all those that I was able to collect, end quote. Which I think is how a lot of paleontology goes. Yeah, that's a good scientific spirit in general. Mm -hmm. Like this is the beginning. Continue. (laughs) Keep building on it. You know, don't take anything for granted, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's cool. Gideon Mantell sure is more likable than Richard Owen. (laughs) He was more of the sentiment, I know everything, leave me alone. (laughs) Right. Don't question me. (laughs) (laughs) At least from what we've heard. We have no way of knowing. (laughs) And our fun fact of the day is that if Gigantoraptor laid a full clutch of macro elonga tulithus eggs that we discussed earlier, it would lose about 300 pounds or 10% of its body weight in just the mass of the eggs alone. That's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. So I want to explain where this math comes from because I think it's kind of fun. So these eggs, which were about five inches wide by, you know, over a foot long, have a volume of just under five liters or 1.3 gallons, which is just an insanely huge egg. And it makes me think like, man, that would have been a convenient thing for sailors or somebody to have as like a source of nutrition. I imagine these eggs would have been so popular as like a a mobile (laughs) food thing. But in any event, Gigantoraptor is not really that big for a dinosaur. It's in the ballpark of 1.5 to 2 tons, which puts it somewhere between the mass of a hippo and a rhino for modern scale. But it was way taller and way longer because we know dinosaurs were a lot less dense (laughs) than especially things like hippos, which are about as dense as an animal gets. 
And we also know that clutches of Macroelonga tulithus come in up to 26 eggs. So if you do the math and you multiply that volume by 26, you get about 34 gallons of egg <laughs> or about 300 pounds of egg, which is just an insane amount of egg. Along with that, the amount of calcium that these dinosaurs would have needed is also staggering. The shells can get nearly five millimeters or one-fifth of an inch thick, and there are about 0.2 square meters or two square feet of surface area on each egg, which means that a full clutch would have been roughly 4.7 square meters or 50 square feet of eggshell at five millimeters thick about. <laughs> and I'm not going to guess the exact composition to give an amount of calcium that's needed because we really don't know. But I imagine that Gigantoraptor would have had some pretty weak bones <laughs> after laying such a massive clutch and all that calcium. Not to mention how weak it would have been from putting 300 pounds worth of nutrients into these eggs. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. So maybe it just left that space in the middle of the large clutch so that it could sit down for a while and relax. <laughs> Take it easy. Yeah. And then while it's there, it might as well do some incubating, you know. Win-win. Yeah. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Also, don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And join our community, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good